Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. And we are here in Charleston, South Carolina, where we just came off of the final uh, Democratic debate before the South Carolina primary and the final one before the campaign goes national on Super Tuesday. Uh, Mary Alice, we know that Bernie Sanders has gotten off to a strong start in the primary so far. Um, but this may be where he runs into a buzzsaw. That buzzsaw is named Joe Biden. Uh, he had a, a strong-ish uh, debate uh, here in South Carolina. Uh, he's very strong here. He got a key endorsement from Congressman Jim Clyburn, probably the biggest name endorsement that you can imagine in this state. Uh, and he comes into uh, the, the, the voting Saturday potentially with a bit of a head of steam and a possibility of at least slowing the, the Sanders momentum. There was a lot of yelling and disagreement on the debate stage, but all the candidates seemed united in their desire to take Bernie down a notch. There was really a sense of urgency and pressure. I think pressure at some times that looked even a little desperate because they know that he is the one going into Super Tuesday with a lot of power. And if they don't start to really break through and beat him in some states, well, then he will win. There, there's urgency. There was also chaos on the stage. It was a wild debate. Um, it felt, felt like the moderators lost control at times. Uh, and so many of these candidates were just almost desperate, as you say, to, to get in whatever their argument is. Uh, a little bit later, I'm going to check in with Anita Dunn, who's a, a top uh, a campaign advisor for Joe Biden, uh, check in with her on, on the eve of this must-win state for the Biden campaign. But Mary Alice, you're right. This was a, an absolute pylon. This was the first debate where Bernie Sanders was uh, literally center stage there in uh, on the field of seven candidates. Uh, and here's a little bit of what they had to say about him. Bernie, in fact, hasn't passed much of anything. I do not think that this is the best person to lead the ticket. Progressives have got one shot, and we need to spend it with a leader who will get something done. I'm hearing my name mentioned a little bit tonight. <laughs> I wonder why. Well, he didn't have to wonder for long. We know why his name was getting mentioned. But, but Mary Alice, you've been covering Bernie Sanders for a long time, going back to, to his 2016 campaign. Um, a lot of the shots that he took were things we've heard before about Bernie Sanders, but it also there were also some new things that were put on the table. Yeah, and I think that was a key difference there. Some of the attacks that have been tried before um, felt a little flat, actually. When you, I think that Bernie's used to answering criticisms about the high price tags of his proposals. He's frankly used to answering criticisms about his record on, on gun safety, which is really different than a lot of the other Democrats on stage. Um, and some of those sort of repeat attacks, I think he was able to kind of fend off, though he wasn't used to everyone ganging up on him. There were definitely moments that he seemed a little riled, um, rattled, even red in the face. But I think that the, the attacks that landed differently, that really seemed to cause some bruising, uh, were the ones that were new. He really struggled when he was put on the spot again about his defense and praise of parts of the Fidel Castro regime in Cuba. You could see the candidates on stage knew that this wasn't some old Bernie Sanders comment. This was something he said this week, and he had not found his footing on that. Yeah, and it was a moment where the campaign was hoping to begin to pivot to um, to a broader sense of appeal away from the revolutionary language he's often talked about. But let, let's listen to that. This was uh, this was Joe Biden talking about that exact exchange that, uh, that you referenced. This man said that, in fact, he thought it was he did not condemn what that they did. That is untrue, categorically untrue. Authoritarian of any stripe is bad. But Period. that is different than saying that governments occasionally do things that are good. Look to you, so th this is an interesting one, Mary Alice, because um, on one level, this is Bernie Sanders being very consistent. Mm -hmm. um, this is not 
a new argument from him uh, or a new defense from him about authoritarian regimes that, yeah, they've done some things that are good things at times. Um, so um, it, this is a different moment, though, it seems, uh, in, in terms of the news cycle. Yeah, because he's not going to be able to sit up there and lecture on everything about the Castro regime. These are debates. They're quick. They're sound bites, And it seems totally naive to think that this wasn't going to be something that could be used against him and that wouldn't really shock uh, people around the country. I mean, there are, there are a lot of Democrats who might be sympathetic to things that Bernie is pitching, but who are fundamentally freaked out that Bernie at the top of the ticket would be risky for Democrats. I've talked to a lot of voters, I know you have, who say that the president's going to call him a communist, Republicans are going to say he's a socialist, it means we're going to lose. But when he makes comments like this, he feeds into those fears. And that's just one end of the spectrum, let alone people that hear what he had to say about the Castro regime and really, really don't agree with it, who have horrific memories of and and personal experiences that they're drawing on to really disagree with what Bernie was saying. Yeah, and it's a different moment for him because he needs to take his appeal a little bit broader. He has um, he's won the popular vote in the first three states, but um, the numbers in Nevada were a little better than the first two states, but they were not talking about overwhelming victories. We don't have a party that's just absolutely falling in line behind Bernie Sanders. There's a lot of people he has to convince. Uh, and of course, with that many candidates on stage, it's hard to see how anyone can offer that individual defense. They would all love to have a one-on-one -on -one matchup against Bernie Sanders, but the dynamic going into South Carolina and then Super Tuesday is there's just so many of them. Uh, they all took their shots at Bernie Sanders, but uh, I don't. It doesn't feel like any of them are able to to coalesce enough support to to stall what uh, looks like a march right now to a delegate majority. And in this, the same way that Bernie Sanders is struggling to expand his base, and and really will have to, like you're saying, will have to appeal to a larger part of the party. I, the other candidates are too. You know, you have Joe Biden up there saying that he's going to win South Carolina because he's going to win the African American vote which I think is true, but it wasn't as if he was making some pitch that I felt like was going to win him over some of those younger college voters that have really been sticking behind Bernie Sanders or the candidates that say that they think Bernie is too radical and they're pitching themselves as a moderate. Well, that's fine, but clearly there are plenty of supporters of Bernie Sanders who aren't interested in a moderate. So at some point, any Democrat is going to have to try to win more than 50% of the party, and no one has been able to really make a pitch that looks like a successful unity pitch. Yeah, and of course, a lot of people were thinking that Michael Bloomberg could be that guy, and, and he's the only other candidate that has the ability to compete financially around Super Tuesday states. Um, it was only a week ago that he had that first debate, widely panned, a poor performance all around, his own campaign admitting it. Uh, it, it felt to me like he was a good bit stronger in the most recent debate, but um, man, he took a lot of fire as well. It felt like a lot of the candidates view him, even if he isn't the biggest threat, uh, maybe the most effective or potentially effective foil for them. Take a listen to Elizabeth Warren uh, digging in once again on a, on a slightly different uh, line of attack. I didn't have a union to protect me and I didn't have any federal law on my side. So I packed up my stuff and I went home. At least I didn't have a boss who said to me, kill it. The way that I Mayor Bloomberg never alleged said that. have said to one of oh, his on. pregnant employees. I mm -hmm. Never is, said it. Period. End of story. 
Look, categorically never said it. So this, this is a complicated uh, slice of the story to unpack, Mary Alice. Um, uh, the, the, the woman in question here did allege that this was said that way, although uh, another person that purports to be a witness to it says it was said in, in a slightly different way. In either event, though, it's kind of bad for Michael Bloomberg. He was hoping to get beyond this by after the, the last debate, um, agreeing to release the uh, some women that accused him of uh, of insensitive comments from non-disclosure agreements. Uh, but but Elizabeth Warren wasn't letting up, and, and all the candidates really weren't letting up, not just on his treatment of women, uh, but also on the fact that he's a billionaire uh, and that he is spending as widely as he is, and he used to be a Republican. The whole book came out on Mike Bloomberg. And again, for me, I come back to this idea of electability because it's what voters talk to us so much about. And I wonder if the real damage done to the Bloomberg campaign isn't really on the ins and outs of this one issue or what he said to one woman necessarily, but questioning whether he can win and whether he is a risky candidate or not. You know, female voters and especially educated urban female voters are the most dedicated Democratic voters right now, those that are saying without a doubt that they're planning to vote in this primary and the general election. And it's hard to imagine that Democrats are going to be excited about putting someone at the top of the ticket that, true or not, could be uh, shaky with that core base. So again, it gets at perceptions of his electability, as did, I think, the attack about him being a former Republican. You saw Elizabeth Warren also name a bunch of Republicans that he had helped fundraise for and that's a hard argument to make on a democratic debate stage. Yeah, it, it is. And uh, obviously it, it has particular resonance in a state like South Carolina, a state uh, with, that does not have a real ability to be a, uh, a battleground state in the general election, but has a proud tradition in the Democratic Party. Uh, it, it's a place where um, obviously Bill Clinton did very well in the primaries. Barack Obama did well in the primaries. And, and Biden is really hoping that th those kind of loyalties run deep. One other thing about Bernie Sanders, um, uh, the, before, we, before we wrap this up, Mary Alice, uh, I, I couldn't help but notice his interactions with the crowd. And uh, it seemed awkward at times. I mean, Bernie Sanders has given a lot of speeches over the years. Um, clearly, he's had hostile crowds as well as uh, adoring crowds. But the dynamic at this debate was something that I haven't seen before in this cycle. Take a listen to uh, Bernie Sanders defending himself, uh, a question about guns that he tried to turn on Joe Biden. Joe has voted for terrible trade agreements. No, 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 no. Joe voted for the war in Iraq. My point was not to be. I have cast thousands of votes, including bad votes. That was a bad vote. And then this is this is Bernie Sanders um, when he went on the attack against Mike Bloomberg. Mayor Bloomberg has a solid and strong and enthusiastic base of support. Problem is, they're all billionaires. Now, if you look. Oh, on the other hand, of the last 50 polls that have been done nationally, Mr. Bloomberg, I beat Trump 47 of those 50 times. So what do you think? I think Bernie's used to talking to friends. He's used to talking to crowds that like him, people that share in his political philosophy. He is not one that uh, works to bend his message or um, does a lot of of trying to win different people over. And so he's shocked in those moments, I think, when he gets booed. And I think it's really important to look at, at the specifics of the, and the context of those two moments. You know, he was asked a very tough, 
but very fair question about his record on guns and and vote and some of his past votes that mean a whole lot to Democratic voters, but especially here in Charleston. I mean, we were blocks away from the site of that horrific shooting from a white supremacist here. It's very fresh on the minds of everyone in that crowd. And if he had answered with that second part of the question, I think, if he had said at the beginning, look, I've taken a lot of bad votes, I've taken a lot of votes, some of them are bad, maybe it would have been different. But the first things out of his mouth were to deflect and to deflect onto a guy that we know is incredibly popular here, the former vice president. So I think it was just an error on his part, and the audience said so. And the same about Bloomberg, too. I mean, clearly the crowd just did not like being told um, that those who support Mayor Bloomberg were wrong in doing so. Yeah, and and I think I, he, it's something that you know, his campaign came out afterwards, suggesting that Mike Bloomberg had bought up all the tickets to to send to his supporters. There's no evidence of that. The Democratic National Committee's pushed back on that concept. Uh, they were very quick to to find potential blame for the fact that he wasn't being received well. You know, there's a lot of Democrats that want to boo Bernie Sanders, at least out, either quietly or out loud, and it's something he's going to have to overcome. But for now, this remains what appears to be uh, Joe Biden's state to lose. Uh, it, it changes a lot of the storylines going into Super Tuesday, but some of the fundamentals will remain at the end of this, that, uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders has a, a lot of potential strength in Super Tuesday states. Uh, Mike Bloomberg is a complicating factor. And the big complicating factor, there's just so many of these candidates still running. Yes. And if they continue to splinter the vote around the country and if they continue to not make inroads in some of Bernie's base, you know, young people, then Bernie might take a lot of attacks, but he might keep sailing. All right. Thank you, Mary Alice. We're going to come back in a few moments after the break and talk to a top strategist for former Vice President Joe Biden. And we're pleased to be joined here on the Powerhouse Politics podcast by Anita Dunn, a senior advisor and strategist to uh, the former vice president of the United States, Joe Biden. Anita, welcome. Thanks for having me, Rick. So I know you're, you're in Charleston uh, on your way back to uh, campaign headquarters. Um, I, I just came from the event uh, where, where Congressman James Clyburn endorsed uh, the vice president um, coming off the debate last night. What's the what's the state of mind and the state of play in Biden world coming off the debate and heading into Saturday? You know, I think we are feeling very good about South Carolina. We came out of Nevada in second place. And the vice president said at the time, that's where the comeback began. And we feel like the comeback is progressing nicely here. He had a very strong debate performance last night, probably his strongest of the campaign, his 10th debate. Um, and today, of course, was endorsed by Jim Clyburn, who is not just the third ranking um, leadership uh, member in the House of Representatives, but in South Carolina, you know, has a, a leadership stature that probably no one else in the state does. So, to, uh, you know, we feel very good heading into the rest of this week. It is an important state. It is the first state that will hold a primary that has um, a, a, a significant African-American population. And, you know, the vice president has said since the beginning of this campaign that nobody should win this nomination without a demonstrated ability to appeal to the most important parts of the Democratic constituency. So that's the test for this Saturday. How, how much did the, the first couple of contests knock you guys off course? Um, I felt like there was a, an opportunity that, that your campaign had to kind of take a commanding lead early. Obviously, Bernie Sanders winning the popular vote now in the first three contests has has taken that ability away. But how much has that forced you guys to reassess and, and adjust uh, your strategy going forward? You know, we knew that the first two contests were going to be very difficult, very challenging for us. 
Um, Iowa, I think, um, just demographically is one of the states that ranked near the bottom in terms of where our support is and, and the demographics of the state. And then New Hampshire, you had you know, Elizabeth Warren and Deval Patrick and Bernie Sanders all competing there. So we knew that they would be tough. We, we might not have expected them to have been as tough as they were, but you know, we always saw this as a grouping of four states the first two and the second two, we knew that once we got to more favorable terrain in the second two, that it would be a a more advantageous contest for us. And I think that that is the case indeed, that where we're strong happens to be um, with the um, kinds of consistencies that are in Nevada and in South Carolina. And we think that we're going to come out of South Carolina with um, a lot of momentum heading into Super Tuesday. What what is that? What does that look like functionally? It's so close on its heels. Only four days later, and a lot of states have had early voting going on for weeks now. What kind of what kind of bump can you realistically expect out of uh, out of South Carolina? I think you can get a real bump, and you're right. It's it's um, actually two two full days between the primary and and Super Tuesday, and only one business day. And you say to yourself, "Who made this calendar?" <laughs> it's really it's really crazy. And so many states have had early voting. But I think that you also have just the ability to to go into states. Um, and obviously, everyone's picking their states where they're concentrating. But but we feel we feel very good about coming out of South Carolina with the kind of momentum that can really help us three days later. One thing I was struck at the debate on, on Tuesday night is that there are still so many candidates that, that, that having seven candidates qualifying for debates this deep into the cycle, as you know, it's not really that deep, but it feels it feels deep into the cycle uh, is is a pretty extraordinary thing. Uh, and, and obviously we saw this in Nevada where um, dividing up the, uh, the the electorate in a whole bunch of narrow slices makes it easier for the front runner to conquer. Bernie Sanders walks away with far more delegates than he would have gotten just based on pure uh, vote share walking into the room. Uh, how 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 can you possibly or how can anyone beat Bernie Sanders with this many candidates? At what point do people have to drop out functionally for a, a Sanders uh, opponent to emerge? You know, this race feels a little more like 1992 um, or 1988 than any of the more recent nominating processes. You know, in, in 1992, Bill Clinton only won, I think, one of the first 11 contests that it was you had a number of candidates who stayed in and stayed in for a very long time and who each had their own kind of strengths going into different places. I think that, you know, this is, this is clearly going to be a contest that is going to go through the entire primary season as 2008 did, as 2016 did, as 1992 did. I, I don't see anybody wrapping this one up early. And I think as we go along, the candidates, particularly candidates who are having trouble broadening out their constituencies and their and their support into the, the, the full kind of diverse coalition of the Democratic Party, are going to face real challenges because of the kind of states. I mean, everybody will be able to go cherry pick states on these multiple state days like Super Tuesday or March 10th. But at the end of the day, in order to really accumulate significant delegates, Rick, you, you've got to be able to go into those more diverse districts. And right now you have two, two candidates with a proven ability to do it and one candidate who's spending a lot of money to try to get into it. So, you know, we will see. You know, right now there's no reason for any candidate to get out because the reason candidates tend to get out is they run out of money 
and nobody's run out of money yet. And obviously Tom Styron, Mike Bloomberg are never running out of money. I want to ask about that dynamic in a moment, but, but if, as long as we're cherry picking, pick your cherries for us for Super Tuesday. Where, where are the places that you say, <laughs> well, this is prime for particular, uh, particularly strong nights for, uh, for uh, Vice President Biden? You know, I think we feel good about um, the southern states. You know, there, there are a number of southern states that have um, primaries. We feel, you know, Alabama, North Carolina, Virginia. Obviously, they're all contests. Um, we, you know, a new poll came out in Texas this morning showing that we're tied with Sanders. I think we feel like Texas is going to be a very competitive state. I think, obviously, everyone is looking at California just because the sheer number of delegates is so is so big there. And, you know, different campaigns are competing in different states on Super Tuesday. But we feel we feel very good about where we are. And, you know, Super Tuesday is as much a delegate contest as it is a state contest. You can accumulate large numbers of delegates um, without necessarily having to go win big states. And so we've always looked at it as as a delegate day as much as a state day. Having said that, we'd like to win some states. I could I could imagine. Let's talk about the you know, the big money in the race. I had I had one smart strategist, someone I consider smart that I that I talked to who who made the point that uh, Tom Steyer may be a bigger immediate threat to Joe Biden than uh, than Bernie Sanders because of his ability to um, siphon votes away in South Carolina. He's had the field to himself for a long time. Uh, is that something the campaign has been has been talking about and worried about the 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 potential for uh, Steyer, who's not accumulating delegates anywhere, to to take a, a big chunk out of the Biden vote in South Carolina? Well, you know, Steyer spent more than anyone else who contested Nevada and ended up with very poor results. We estimate that he spent roughly $2,000 a vote just on TV spending in Nevada. And, it, you know, if you go back and you look at um, coverage of public polls in January, you can see some coverage of uh, Steyer surging, quote unquote, in Nevada polls. And certainly he has, you know, picked up support in South Carolina polls. You know, I think we believe that as you get closer to actual election day here, that people are going to want their votes to count. And it's not clear what Tom Steyer's path to the nomination is. And people, people, you know, want to pick a president. So we feel that in South Carolina, that at the end of the day, we probably have a good shot at getting a lot of those votes back. And what about Michael Bloomberg? Not on the ballot here, um, but it's been at the last two debates and has been blanketing airwaves you know, on Super, in Super Tuesday states. Do, do you view him as a potential spoiler in this race? Uh, what what is your what's your view of what the impact could be of Bloomberg coming out of these debates and going into Super Tuesday? You know, obviously, anybody who comes in and spends half a billion dollars on advertising, which is how much he has spent already in a very targeted way around Super Tuesday states is going to have an impact on the race. Uh, you know, what is striking is that he has spent half a billion dollars and is not leading in any Super Tuesday state. Um, in most of them, he's, you know, in third place, maybe you'll find a few polls where he's in second, but he's in third place behind Sanders and Biden. I think that it is um, in many of the states and other states, he's in the mix but he's not leading anywhere after having spent an enormous amount of money. And in presidential races, you know, people at the end of the day are making that choice based on who they think can beat Donald Trump and who they really think carries their democratic values. And I'm not sure that Mike Bloomberg at the end of the day meets both those tests. 
And finally, Anita, before we let you go, uh, I, I just want to ask kind of the, the personal side of Joe Biden campaigning in South Carolina. Uh, I've heard a lot of talk about Barack Obama and the Obama coalition and the way that this state put things together for him. He's obviously got a lot of friends in this state. Uh, you work for President Obama. You've been you've been a friend of, of both uh, Obama and Biden for a long time. What's your sense of what this moment means for him personally, given the setbacks of the last couple of weeks, given the ups and downs of the campaign? Uh, this is a guy that that feels and touches and, and breathes politics in a way. Uh, and it, it feels like there's something different about this state than the states that have come before. I think South Carolina has always been a special state for Joe Biden. He has a lot of friends down here and a lot of relationships down here that predate his relationship with um, Barack Obama. You know, he has um, spent a lot of time in the state and, and these are deep relationships and he's comfortable down here. He's, you know, his home state, Delaware, not everyone realizes is, you know, has, um, a significant African-American population by percentage of overall population. This is, you know, he came out of um, a, a small state with a large African-American population. That's where he cut his teeth politically. That's where he got involved politically. That's why he got involved politically. And I think that he feels very comfortable campaigning in South Carolina, you know, seeing a lot of old friends, making new friends. And, um, and, and having significant political support here. All right. Anita Dunn, senior advisor, strategist for Vice President Joe Biden's campaign. Good luck uh, getting back out of Charleston with, with flight delays and the like <laughs> and, and all the rest. And good luck. It's yes. just beginning, Anita. Well, Rick, I keep asking myself why it is I'm trying to get out of one of the most beautiful cities on earth, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. Tell me about it. I love it as well. Yeah. Thank you, Anita. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics for uh, John Carl, uh, sidelined a little bit with a hoarse voice as we all get over uh, Violet Coles' election season. I'm Rick Klein. Uh, thanks to uh, Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, and the whole Powerhouse Politics team. We'll be back next week after Super Tuesday. <laughs>